Welcome to the Bardcast. It's Shakespeare, you dick. We are your spooky, ghostly hosts. Not really. Kind of. I am Lisa Ann Goldsmith. And I am Owen Thompson. Ah, Owen has turned into a vampire before my very eyes. And And today's episode is Occult Shakespeare. Shakespeare, Shakespeare. We're recording on October 30th, so tomorrow's Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, everybody. Actually, it's the 29th. That's true. We're dropping on the 30th. I, every day is Blur's Day. Every day is Blur's Day when it isn't Cry Day. That's true. And again, guys, you know from our last episode, it is very close to the election and we're still a little freaked out. Right. We, we could use a little dark magic to accomplish our goals. Not dark money. But dark magic. You know what? Whatever it fucking takes. I don't give a shit. (laughs) So where to start? Where to start? So occult Shakespeare, we're going to don't just don't worry. We're going to get to, you know, creepy crypts and coffins and ghosts and ghoulies and that kind of thing in Shakespeare. But we also history is a good idea for. Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about the just the the background of of occultism itself in, in the Elizabethan era. Absolutely. So uh, I think the first figure that we want to talk about, maybe the single most influential uh, occultist of the Elizabethan era is John Dee. Yes. So John Dee was a magus and a brilliant man. He was a mathematician, an astrologer. Um, Supposedly, he was descended from a noble old Welsh house. He said that his, he affirmed that among his direct ancestors were Roderick the Great, Prince of Wales. Did you Mm, know that? He was was astrologer to Queen Elizabeth, was he not? He was. Um, He went to college, St. John's College in Cambridge at the age of 15 in 1542, where he studied math and astronomy, receiving his Bachelor of Art degree two years later at 17 years old. After receiving his first degree, he went to Holland, where he met with many scholars. Uh, When he returned to England, he brought with him the first astronomer's staff of brass, along with two brass gloves constructed by Gerard Merciter, a famous cartographer of that time. And when he got back to England, he received a Master of Arts degree. But then he was forced to leave England after being accused of being a conjurer. Along the way, though, uh, he was a a great navigator. He was a, a teacher of navigators, and he was a great proponent uh, politically of expanding England's territory. Uh, in fact, he is credited with coining the term British Empire. That's right. And actually, the reason he was accused of being a conjurer was that he built a machine that could help them navigate. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about John Dee as an occultist, uh, what we mean is that he came from a, a tradition that it seems in the 21st century to be counterintuitive, that somebody would study the supernatural and the scientific side by side. But to people like John Dee, the distinction meant absolutely nothing. Um, there is a tradition called Hermeticism, which came from largely can be traced back to the, the ancient writings of a writer named Hermes Trimagestus. Um, Hermeticism, Kabbalah, this sort of thing, these occult studies were considered by many to be scientific. And when we call somebody like John Dee a magus, that is to say somebody who um, considered the supernatural and occult quote unquote sciences to be in the service of God, as opposed to a sorcerer who would be studying dark magic, quote unquote. Right. Although the technical um, definition of a magus is uh, a member of a priestly caste of ancient Persia or a sorcerer. Right. But 
but the distinction had been made by the time we get roll around to Elizabethan times between a mages and a sorcerer. Sorcerer dark, mages white. That's right. Um, or at least so-called. Yeah. So anyway, so when he was sent away for being a conjurer, uh, he spent some time in France, um, Louvain, and then Paris giving lectures on Euclid's elements and the basics of geometry at the Sorbonne, which is very um, impressive. And he was offered a permanent post there, but he declined that post so he could return to England where he had been recommended for the post of rector of Severn upon Severn by Edward VI, the son of Henry VIII. Now, while performing the duties of rector with the assurance of a, a home and a steady income, he exclusively devoted himself to astrological studies. Yeah, yeah. indeed. But Edward, died at age 16. And then this left Dee once again in an awkward financial situation. He cast the horoscope for Queen Mary and later visited Mary's half-sister Elizabeth in jail to determine when Mary would die. So in 1553, he was accused of, quote, using enchantments against the Queen's life and imprisoned at Hampton Court. These accusations of witchcraft and sorcery plagued him all of his life, despite the fact that he was a brilliant scientist. And, and again, we're talking about Edward having uh, Henry, who is the father of all three, Edward VI, Mary I, and Elizabeth II in order. Um, Edward and Mary, who both died without any children, which is how Elizabeth ended up on the throne. And all of this stuff is interwound with the, the religious politics of the moment, which we've already talked about on prior episodes. Henry having broken with the Church of Rome and established the Church of England, of which he was the head. Edward, although he was a kid, kind of kept going with that. But when he died, Mary turned the country back to Catholicism. That's right. And when she died, Elizabeth basically turned the country back to Protestantism. So all of these people like John Dee are caught in the middle of this. That's right. So after he visited in 1553, he was accused of black magic and jailed. So in 1555, he was freed and Mary died in 1558. So then Dee's fortunes began to rise with the accession of Elizabeth due to the fact that Lord Robert Dudley, one of the Queen's favorites, asked Dee to pick, quote, a propitious day for her coronation. And Elizabeth met Dee and she was so impressed with him that she had him give her lessons in astrology. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, these are a bunch of superstitious motherfuckers, obviously. They are a bunch of superstitious motherfuckers. But anyway, so... He went to the continent for several years. Uh, in 1571, he purchased a mansion on the Thames and he began a collection of books and manuscripts, you know, which were later destroyed by mobs that thought that he was familiar with the devil and were confiscated by the queen after 1583. Uh, the collection included 4,000 rare books and 700 choice manuscripts, many of which are found today in the British Museum. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the greatest. Uh, he had the, one of the, the greatest libraries on the continent of Europe uh, at that time. And, and that's no mean feat. Books were hard to come by. Yeah, majorly hard These to come by. These are expensive items. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so he, so he practiced astrology for his living, but he also studied the Talmud, Rosicrucian theories, practiced alchemy in hopes of finding the elixir of life, um, and the Philosopher's Stone. So in 1581, he began to experiment with uh, crystallomancy or crystal gazing, you know, which is a mode of divination using a globe or a clear pool of water or any transparent object. According to his diary on May 25th, 1581, 
He first saw spirits while crystal gazing. And during the following year, he said he had a vision of the angel Yuryo, who gave him a convex piece of crystal that would allow communication with the spirit world. Now, we're going into what sounds like kind of loony territory, right? But the, but the <laughs> truth is, I mean, to, to, from a, and from a 21st century view, that, that, that's fair enough. But it's important to understand that, the, the, I mean, whether or not you look, at a, you look at a crystal long enough and you really want to see something and eventually you're going to see what you want to see. But, um, you know, this was, a, this was a pretty commonly held belief. Even as late in the day as Isaac Newton, you know, long, long after the Elizabethan era had passed, Isaac Newton is one of the greatest scientists, maybe, you know, from some points of view, the greatest scientist who ever lived. He also believed in alchemy which for those of you who don't know is the belief that you can turn base metals like lead into gold and find the quote unquote philosopher's first stone or the elixir of life, which would grant, you know, eternal life. Um, Isaac Newton believed in that stuff. And we, and, and yet he was capable of being such, like one of the greatest scientists of all time. So these are not necessarily um, <clears throat> contradictory beliefs to hold, at least at that time. And to be fair, the study of occultism and the supernatural by hard-headedly scientific minds um, eventually produced modern science because people learned to rule out the supernatural in scientific pursuits. That's right. Eventually, he had uh, an assistant whose name was Edward Kelly. And Edward Kelly became very interested in this book called the Necronomicon, um, which was given to him by an alchemist, Jacob Eliezer, who was known as the Black Rabbi. Now, this book does exist, by the way, and it was the basis of Crowley's, Alastair Crowley, who was a famous witch, The Book of the Law, and H.P. Lovecraft's Tuchulu. Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, yeah, it was one of the most famous grimoires of, the, of that era, the books of, supposed books of magic that told you how to make talismans and amulets and summon demons and, and talk to angels and that kind of thing. Right, but that scared Dee. So he had been living in Poland with, uh, his family and Edward Kelly, but he came back to England. Kelly actually was arrested as a heretic and a sorcerer in Prague. And uh, after his second imprisonment, he attempted to escape, but he managed to fall and break two of his ribs and both legs and died in 1593 due to his injuries. Now, I know, right? He returned to England, welcomed by Elizabeth, and then went back to his home by the Thames. He found his home ransacked and Elizabeth gave him a lot of his possessions had been stolen. Elizabeth gave him 2000 pounds for the damage, which at that time is That's a lot of money, ordinary amount of money. Um, and then Elizabeth gave him first the position of the chancellor of St. Paul's cathedral in London. And then the wardenship of Manchester college that he held until 1603 when he finally retired for good. Um, he died in 1608 at the age of 81 in extreme poverty though. Yeah, he died broke. But 81, is that's pretty good back then. Oh my God, that's really impressive. Shakespeare only made it to 52. I know. Yeah. Marlowe was only 29. But he got, you know, he got assassinated. So that's a good, actually, that's a good really transition. So that, I mean, so the, the you know, all, well, also to say, you know, obviously the occult is, uh, even today, horror movies and are, are very popular. So the addition of the occult to a play gave you the opportunity for some spooky effects and titillating the audience and that kind of thing. So <clears throat> obviously um, they could add to the commercial success of your play. 
Uh, early on as uh, Christopher Marlowe, who was the first giant success of the Elizabethan era as a playwright, wrote a play called Dr. Faustus, uh, which many people may know. Certainly, you know, the, the tradition of Dr. Faust, the, the scientist who sells his soul to the devil. Um, and, and that play is filled with occult references, including the appearance of Mephistopheles. That's right. Um, we talk about James, too. Yes, of course. Well, uh, but but interestingly, James, you know, obviously King James comes much later. So you have you have Christopher Marlowe writing these plays, you have Shakespeare writing plays that have occult images in them under Queen Elizabeth, and he establishes himself, uh, you know, for many, many years. And then Elizabeth dies in 1603. And King James I ascends to the throne. And that is a game changer because James was super duper into the occult himself. Yes. And as a matter of fact, he wrote a book called Demonology, published in 1597. Uh, he talking about his beliefs about witches, and he increased the public hysteria over witches, certainly in Scotland. He said the witches who received their power from the devil could raise storms, could cause illness and death by burning of wax and images, and were followers of, quote, Diana and her wandering court. He said that the devil appeared in the likeness of dog, a cat, an ape, or other such like beast, and was always inventing new techniques for deceiving others. He defended swimming as a test for witches, in which the accused were bound and thrown into deep water. The innocent sank and were usually drowned, and the guilty floated, whereupon they were executed. So really matter one way or another. Uh, James believed in sexual acts with demons. Uh, but interestingly enough, he did not believe in impregnation by an incubus. That, he said, was bullshit. It's <laughs> an interesting distinction to make there, James. Yeah. He believed in demonic possession, uh, but he doubted the power of the church to cure it permanently. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. He noted the simplicity of Jesus's instructions for exorcism, prayer, fasting, and expelling the demons in his name. So, so here you have a new, a, a king, well, not so new by the time Macbeth is written, but, uh, you know, he'd only been king for, what, about three or four years as Shakespeare is writing that play. Um, and he's Scottish. Right. And he's into magic and witchcraft and the occult. Hmm. Maybe that explains the writing of a little play known as Macbeth. Right. Right. And in 1603, he took the English throne as James I, and they reissued his demonology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he was well known to, you know, his tastes were well known. He's also the patron of Shakespeare's company, having taken over from the Lord Chamberlain. So they're now the King's men. So they write this play. So Shakespeare writes this play for performance for James, in which, which is filled with magic and witchcraft. It also flatters James as the descendant of Banquo, uh, right. who, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the Scottish play, the, the basic story is that um, uh, this murderous general becomes king of Scotland um, by killing a bunch of people, including his friend Banquo, who's prophesied not to become king himself, but for his heirs to become king. And one of his distant heirs, of course, is none other than, drumroll please, James the first. <laughs> So that's a big old compliment to James in a way. So it, it's going to, this play is calculated to tickle James' fancy in a bunch of different ways. And apparently it worked. Yes. So let's talk about the use of occultism in Macbeth, shall we? Do we want to start with occultism in, in that play? Or do we want to go back further in, in the Shakespeare canon to see how we got there? 
because there's a well, lot of magic and you know Macbeth is fairly late Macbeth is fairly late I mean you know there's ghosts in a ton of plays there's a most notably, there's the ghost in Hamlet. Right. Very famously, the ghost in Hamlet. You got the ghost in Hamlet. You got the ghost of Julius Caesar. Right. That's you right. Ha- although that's very brief. You have no, you have no fewer than 11. Yes, count them 11 ghosts in Richard III. That's right. Isn't that crazy? And, you know, there's also a bunch of soothsayers who are telling people what's going to happen, right? There's, you know. Right. And Julius Caesar. Uh, recognition and dreams and stuff like that. Richard has that dream at the end of the play. Mm-hmm. You got a bunch of fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream. A bunch of fairies in Midsummer. Well, we're going to get into that uh, for a second because there's something that I want to talk about as far as the botanical Shakespeare goes, which Owen and I were discussing. We think actually is such a huge category. Uh, plants means, and distillations from plants. That's and right. All Poisons this and all this stuff that, that we're going to make that its own podcast episode later on but we'll get to that absolutely but so you wanted to say about midsummer i did want to say something about midsummer uh well first of all there's fairies right um although if you're going to talk about that you also have to talk about reginald scott reginald scott was an englishman and a member of parliament who wrote the discovery of rich witchcraft Witchcraft? No. (laughs) The Discovery of Witchcraft, which was published in 1584. Now, this was written against the belief in witches to show that witchcraft did not exist. Part of its content espouses how these miraculous feats of magic were done. And it's often deemed the first textbook on conjuring. But he aligns himself with Reformed Protestantism, quoting John Calvin more than a dozen times. He expresses what is often called the providential view, stating that, quote, it is neither a witch nor devil, but glorious God that maketh the thunder. God maketh the blustering tempests and whirlwinds. So he's saying anything, quote, magical that happens directly has to do with the Bible and with God. So again, you see how this stuff is bound up with religion and religious politics, right? Because you have astrologers advising the queen, you have people talking about how it's related to the Bible or not related to the Bible. And listen, you know what? Who are we to judge? You know, astrologers have been influencing United States policy directly, at least as recently as the Reagan administration. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, and certainly, you know, ridiculous religiosity has been influencing politics up until like, oh, I don't know, yesterday. And I, I, I will not go so far as to insult Satanists by saying they must be responsible for the presidency of Donald Trump, but I am tempted to do so. Actually, I, I respect the Satanists slightly because they have gotten a whole bunch of things a whole bunch of court cases overturned because they're using the fact that Satanism is their religion. Listen, not for nothing. You have to respect a religion whose, uh, you know, first deadly sin is stupidity. <laughs> but I mean, like they were saying, you know, like when a uh, Hobby Lobby and stuff were saying that they, you know, all of that stuff that they don't have to do because it's against their Christianity, you know, Satanism is saying, well, then there's stuff that we don't have to do because it's against our Satan. Exactly. We're a church too. That's right. Right. But back, but so back to Midsummer Night's Dream and the fairies. Right. So first of all, for just in for those who are not familiar with Midsummer Night's Dream, the base the very, very basic story is that there's some kids that want to get married and there's obstacles in their way, and they go into the forest 
outside of Athens, and there's a bunch of fairies in the for in the forest of Athens, and they too are having some disputes, and all kinds of things go haywire, right? So you have Oberon and Titania, the king and the queen of the fairies, that are not getting along. You have Puck, who's the servant of Oberon, who's a mischievous spirit, and they start screwing around with the mortals. Um, so obviously, this is a supernatural situation, seemingly pretty lighthearted, although some kind of messed up things happen along the way, if you really think about it. It's true. Um, Midsummer has a lot to do with Edmund Spencer's three book epic poem, in The Fairy Queen, though. Mm hmm which was published five years before Midsummer Night's Dream. Right, the epic of the Elizabethan era. That's right. The greatest glorious queen of fairyland is a direct representation of Queen Elizabeth I herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um, so yes, the fairy queen is very allegorical in a lot of different ways. That's right. So Shakespeare took Spencer's poem um, and turned it on his head to produce this wonderful comedy about four Athenians tangled in this complicated love it's affair. It's so much more fun than the Fairy Queen. Oh, oh so my much God. But here's something I want to talk about as far as the brilliance of Shakespeare. So, well, you know, those people that say that he didn't write it and all that kind of shit. Uh, to whom I say. Right. Here's a perfect example of how much Shakespeare uh did his research before he wrote his plays. So having been in my youth uh, a practitioner of Wicca, I looked up in some of my magical dictionaries all of the flowers that, for example, Oberon, when he's telling, Oberon tells Puck to go to Titania's bower, her bed, where she's sleeping, and to put the juice of this flower on her eyes so that when she wakes up, the next thing that she sees, no matter how horrible, she will fall in love with. So he says, I quote, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite over canopied with luscious woodbine, with sweet musk roses and with eglantine. There sleeps Titania sometime of the night. Now, if you look up all of these flowers, and don't tell me that this is a fucking accident. No way. If you look up the magical means for all of these flowers, for time, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Time is a purificatory herb, right? The, the Greeks burned it in their temples to purify them. And so time is often burned prior to magical rituals to cleanse the area. It is sacred to the planet Venus, right? Mm -hmm. which covers love. Uh, and it's also carried uh, and smelled to give courage and energy. But more importantly, if you wear time, you will be able to see fairies. Interesting. Yep. Going on. Oxlip, which is primrose. Primrose promotes love and is said to protect the home and also attract fairies. Hello. Uh, um, the plant is slightly narcotic, and so it aids sleep and rest. He's talking about where Titania's bed is, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Violet. Violet is a comative plant, uh, maybe taken as a relaxant, right? Also having to do with sleeping. It is sacred to the goddess Aphrodite and therefore associated with love and love spells. Mm -hmm. It said that if you wear um, a carry, a pocket full of violets, it attracts a new love, sacred Perfect. to the planet Venus and the element of water, right? Woodbine mm -hmm. is honeysuckle. Also cleansing, right? If you ring... Uh, green candles with honeysuckle flowers, 
or place them in a vase for the house or crush them and rub them on your forehead, it heightens psychic powers. Musk hey. roses and eglantine, they're both members of the rose family. Traditionally, roses are used in magic, which is sacred again to the planet Venus. The scent of roses can lift depressive moods, create a sense of well-being and serenity. Red roses proclaim, I love you. They are the ultimate symbol of romantic love and enduring passion, right? Yep. And then he talks about the flower that he wants Puck to use. Oberon says, it fell upon a little Western flower before milk white, now purple with love's wound and maidens call it love in idleness. Love in idleness is a flower called heart's ease, also known as pansy. As the name implies, it's good for the heart, has been used in treating heart conditions and uh, lovelorn conditions, and it's sacred to the planet Saturn, and again, the element of water. It is also suggested that it is the essential ingredient in love potions. Hello. Well, yeah, he did his, I mean, he did his, he did his homework. Yeah. Um, for sure. And and that, I mean, my God, that's a that that's a perfect example of why we have to do botanical Shakespeare, because there's just there's too much of this kind of thing throughout, you know, and that's actually not a bad segue to Hamlet, because, you know, all of that makes me think of Corophilia's mad scenes, mad scene where she has all of those flowers that she hands out when she's going crackers. That's right, which I could go through again and yeah. will do on botanical mm -hmm. Shakespeare. But let's let's talk about the ghost in Hamlet for for a bit. We already talked about the ghost a little bit when we were talking about um, religion and that sort of thing and politics. Um, the fact that the ghost has such a litany of description of what purgatory must be like. Well, clearly the ghost is in purgatory, and that was an illegal concept under uh, the Elizabethan regime, considering that Catholicism was, you know, let let us say uncool. Um, but what's in, one of the things that's interesting to me about the ghost in Hamlet the, is that um, the ghost is not visible to Gertrude when the ghost comes back in the Queen's closet scene. No, but he is visible to more than Hamlet. Yes, exactly. So the ghost. So we at the very beginning of the play, the ghost is visible to Horatio and the guards, and then that's they right. come and tell Hamlet about it, and they all go see the ghost, and the ghost appears to all of them, but speaks only to Hamlet. However. When the ghost comes back in the queen's closet scene, Gertrude cannot see the ghost. She's like, it is very clear in the text that only Hamlet sees the ghost. So what do you think? Does that mean the ghost has chosen not to be visible to Gertrude or that Hamlet is imagining the ghost? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think if you look at the rest of the play, I think the ghost has chosen not to be visible to Gertrude because the whole point is, right, that Hamlet's going to call her out for sleeping with and marrying his father's brother. Right. I think it's a choice. Uh, I, I, you know, I, the good news to me, honestly, as like, as a director, as an interpreter of these plays is like, if they're, if it's ambiguous that way, you get to make the choice. You know what I mean? There's arguments for anything. And, and in that particular scene, that to me is the close. I mean, I, you know, obviously Hamlet puts an antic disposition on and pretends to be crazy and all of that stuff. But He's going a little crazy in that scene. You know what I mean? The way he speaks to his mother at that point and the fact that he just straight up murders Polonius, you know, not for nothing, but when the ghost appears to him, there's a dead body on the floor that his son has just stabbed to death pretty much unprovoked. That's true. 
So I'm just saying that it is indeed, it's possible that the stress of the moment has caused Hamlet to be hallucinating, uh, you know, the ghost of his dead father. And uh, the reason I ask it, that's a nice transition back to the Scottish play. That's right. I was just going to talk about There's a lot of hallucination going on in that play. Um, so you, so you, you've actually, your knowledge of, of Macbeth is much superior to mine because you've done it so much. That's true. Um, and I also read this book called The Occultism in the Shakespeare Plays, A Study of the Occult. The first edition was published in 1917 by L.W. Rogers. And he talks about um, the fact that, yes, Hamlet sees a ghost and Macbeth sees a bunch of ghosts. And he says which I think is really interesting. Okay, he says that, first of all, there are two kinds of phenomena regarding seeing ghosts. The first is a materialization, which is what he says the King of Denmark is for Hamlet. The second is a wraith. And that's what he says Banquo is for Macbeth. And he says, interestingly enough, they differ almost as a man differs from his clothing. Ever since Sir William Crookes, the great English chemist, made his famous experiments in the matter of materializations and published in the Journal of Science the facts that warrant the belief that those who have died from a physical body can sometimes surround themselves with enough dense matter to be seen, to be photographed, to be touched and to speak, it has been possible to discuss such a subject without being dubbed a sentimentalist or a fool, okay? So mm -hmm. Macbeth is obviously very overwrought before and after the murder of the king. He represents a unique condition of nerve tension common to what he calls temporary clairvoyance. So in this state of mind, he sees the bloody dagger in the air before him so real that he tries to grab it. After he has caused the death of Banquo, he sees his victim's wraith. Banquo was on his way to the feast in Macbeth's castle when he's murdered by Macbeth's henchmen. He's hurrying to the castle, his mind intent upon reaching it when death takes him. So his wraith appears at the feast, but only Macbeth, because he's so overwrought and his nerves are so on end, sees it. And his language is fittingly descriptive of wraiths when he says about Banquo, thou hast no speculation in those eyes. Now, in other words, he can't see. Right. That's right. That there is no, uh, there's no recognition in his eyes. There's no viewing. There's nothing like that. Banquo is late right now. So this guy says, it is most interesting to observe how true to nature and to theosophical teaching the description of the wraith of Banquo is. Not only is the possibility of Macbeth seeing the wraith, but the probability of its appearing where and when it did are faithful to the occult. Banquo was late. He was riding hard. He had the whole of his mental energies uh, upon getting to the banquet on time when he meets death. In order that the phenomena of wraiths may be understood and the naturalness of the description of the appearance of the wraith at Banquo at the banquet may be appreciated, it's necessary to understand something of the theosophical conception of the constitution of a human being. So this is why he says it's possible. The physical body in which we have our waking consciousness and the astral body in which we consciously exist after bodily death are connected by the etheric double, which constitutes a duplicate in etheric matter of the physical body occupying the same space as air or ether do, the interpenetration of two grades 
of physical matter, right? Yeah. He says that at the banquet, Macbeth, whose temporary like abnormal nerve condition enabled him to see the etheric matter composing the duplicate of Banquo's physical body, there was no more question to him of Banquo's presence than there was of the existence of other people in that room. Now, Macbeth is not conscious of the fact that he could see what the others could not. And it doesn't even occur to him that Lady Macbeth can't see the wraith. You know, it's as visible to him as the furniture. And he even expresses his astonishment that Lady Macbeth can behold such sights and give no outward sign of agitation. This guy says every student of occultism is familiar with the fact that when one falls asleep, the consciousness leaves the physical body and that the astral body is then its habitation. Hence, the living and the so-called dead may then be together. So the terror with which some murderers come back into the waking consciousness from slumber and their disposition to sometimes automatically go through rehearsals of that murder over and over again during sleep are facts that are as commonly known to occultists as they are imperfectly understood by others. So in Macbeth, we are given a most vivid presentation of the fact that sleep thus occultly plunges the murderer back into the tragedy he foolishly believes to be a closed chapter. Right. And we know that neither Macbeth nor Lady Macbeth can sleep. And Macbeth speaks of, quote, the affliction of these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. Right. Lady Macbeth refuses to sleep without a light burning. And in the sleepwalking scene, she reenacts her murder of the king trying to get the blood out of her hand. Uh, but, you know, you've just you've just touched on something that I think is really fascinating in the play. Um, and, and, and honestly, more. I mean, it's very interesting, the musings of, of, of this guy. Um, my problem with it is that he's he's coming at it from a, a, a point of view that accepts occultism as a, as a literal truth. Absolutely. It's, it's more interesting to me what happens to those characters in the play and the ambiguities that lie at the heart of that play. We yes, we know. I mean, or like after he kills Duncan, there's you know sleep no more. Macbeth has murdered sleep and all of that, right? And they don't sleep again, and it destroys them. Except that. They both don't sleep and do sleep because, of course, famously, we see Lady Mac asleep. Well, I mean, the body dreams. has to sleep. Right. You know, the human also, body has to sleep. Right. But I mean, but but there's references to not sleeping. And yet he references these terrible dreams that shake us nightly. So you are sleeping. It's just that the sleep is valueless. Right. So well, I mean, it's like right what's now, more I'm what's sleeping. more probable? in terms of why why the ghost of Banquo would quote unquote appear to Macbeth who's just had him murdered. The fact that a, that Banquo's spirit has clothed itself in occult material or the fact that Macbeth is freaking out and has a horribly guilty conscience. We know he's already hallucinated seeing a dagger in the air before him taking him towards Duncan. And, and now, Lady Macbeth even says that in the bankruptcy. Right. And that and that leads, and then of course, you know, you know, you have we know that only only Macbeth sees Banquo, that the other people at the banquet do not. Um, but what about the witches? What about those witches who at the beginning greet Macbeth and Banquo and set the whole thing in motion by, you know, making those prophecies? Well, you have a very specific idea on this, Owen. I do. And I don't want to I don't want to overstate it, but my my premise is this, or my question rather is this. What if these witches are not witches at all? Um, but in fact just regular poor ladies, or not even necessarily ladies, people 
um, who beings of some beings. Kind. Well, I'm but I'm saying, what if they're human beings um, who are in a, an extreme situation and have decided to take the only kind of action they can take? given their downtrodden circumstances. Now let us remember that quote unquote witches in Elizabeth and in Elizabethan and Jacobian times were by and large old ladies who were poor who lived in these villages and people would scapegoat them when yeah, the they harvest were exclusively women. When the harvest was bad or cows wouldn't give milk, it was very easy to blame these poor old women and call them witches and you know uh, often murder them as scapegoats for the things that went wrong. In fact, some of them were hauled in front of James himself. That's um, right. So, well, so, you know so first of all, witchcraft. first of all, what's more likely that these three women, and let's just call them women for the sake of argument, that these three women have occult powers or that they have no powers and that they are, they, they're trying to influence events. And so they take advantage of a belief in witchcraft to use that mystique to influence events to, and, and essentially take revenge on the upper classes and fuck with them because that's all they can do. Let me point this out. Not one single time in the text of Macbeth are the witches directly called witches ever? The only they're called the weird sisters. They're called the weird sisters, and even more interestingly, in the folio, they are called the wayward sisters. That's right. They're not even weird sisters. They're the wayward sisters in the folio, and in the text, and it is true that the the stage directions of that play refer to them as witches, but stage directions are notoriously unreliable. Certainly, we have no clue. We have no proof that they were written by Shakespeare. Um, the only time the witches are ever even referred to as a witch, there's exactly one instance, and, and it's, a, and it's a, re a reference. The first witch says that a rump-fed Runyon called her witch when she begged her for some chestnuts, right? That's the right. only time the word witch is used in reference to them, and it isn't by anybody in the play. It's by a character that's referred to. Let me ask you this. If these witches have supernatural powers, why are they begging for chestnuts? Who knows? I mean, frankly, you could call the Kardashians weird sisters. <laughs> well, that's true. I don't think they're begging for chestnuts, though. Um, chestnuts, you know, diamonds the size of chestnuts. That's true. Um, so all I'm saying is this, and I think ambiguity is key to that play anyway. When uh, we know that, that they must exist at least partially because Macbeth and Banquo both see them when they first appear, but then subsequently Macbeth has two, at least two hallucinations when he sees the dagger in front of him and when he sees Banquo's ghost. That's right. And then immediately after that scene, he goes to see the, the quote unquote weird sisters again. And that entire scene, they give him the prophecies about, you know, Burnham Wood and coming to Dunsinane and, and Macduff and all of that stuff. But how do we know that that entire scene is not a figment of Macbeth's imagination? Nobody else is there. That's true, but you know, if if what you're saying is true, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, it's pretty it impressive were. that these old ladies would try to pull this, you know, sort of retribution on the rich people, you know, and then everything comes true, and they're like in their hovel going, "Girl, we totally did it." <laughs> well, that's what I mean. Here's, but here's the thing: for if if my theory is true, all they say, all they say is, "You're going to be king." And you're not going to be king, but your sons are going to be kings. But and then, do, and then everybody goes crazy. He, but they do say Thane of Gloms. Of Thane, Thane of Cawdor, that's true. But, that's let right. me, but let me ask you this. 
there's a big there's a, a war going on. Is it entirely improbable that one of the witches was not at the field where where the the old Thane of Cawdor was caught for being a traitor and came and back What's to her sister on the battlefield and overheard them saying, "Go make Macbeth Thane of Cawdor." It which is not I'm not saying listen. I'm not saying that that's that's pro that's like likely to happen, but what's more likely to happen? That coincidence or magic? I suppose that's a matter of opinion. Now, granted, it's a play. I'm just saying it's very it's a very interesting spin on that play. If you ha- if l- otherwise, the witches have no. Because let me ask you this: What is uh, if if you take my theory away? What is the witch's motivation to do what they do? They like to fuck with people. Right, but that makes them just spirits that have that fuck with people for the sake of it. If my theory is correct, I think it's more dramatically interesting because now they have a motivation, which is revenge. But they might have some, even if they, and I'm, again, I'm just playing devil's advocate, haha, devil's advocate. They might have some sort of motivation for revenge anyway. But my point is, if they are witches, they might have a motive if they are poor downtrodden women they do have a motive and that's more dramatically interesting to me again a matter of opinion but let's go back to for a second uh, yes and perfectly valid um but let's go back for a second to the when we were talking about the dreams and stuff like that because that doesn't just happen in Macbeth. i mean what about richard no you know the end of the play richard falls asleep you know the last night of his life and he meets you know in his dreams in the flesh, all of his victims and right, all but, tell him you're gonna die. Right. All of his eleven the eleven people he murdered come back to him and curse him. But what's interesting what's really interesting there, so if let's say that he, he is asleep, so he's dreaming those ghosts, right? Maybe. Right. But if that's true, then what's it's really interesting because he and Richmond are sharing a dream because the ghosts they come and they damn Richard, but they also bless Richmond. That's right. As he's asleep. So are we to believe that Richmond and Richard are psychically melding in their dream state? Well, there are occultists who would tell you that that is possible, Owen. I mean, that is, I mean, honestly, as a, as a non-occultist, uh, you know, that does seem to be what's happening in Richard III because yeah. the, the, Richard and Richmond go to sleep and some ghosts show up and they speak not to one of them, but to both of them. So the only way that it seems probable to me that, or possible to me that that could happen is in some bizarre shared dream. Well, I will tell you, uh, as we've discussed before, when my mom's father died, when I was 16, my mother and her two brothers all had whatever you want to call it, a visitation from their father in the middle of the night they all got up and wrote down what it was that he told them and wrote down the time and it was five minutes apart. So I don't know what that's about, but that definitely happened and that's personal experience. Yeah, that's I mean, freaky shit. Yeah, it is freaky shit. Um, but you know, also Shakespeare has a ton of soothsayers in his plays, right? In Julius Caesar, we have a prophetic warning right? Uh, Soothsayer tells Caesar, beware the Ides of March, but also Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, has uh, a dream about Caesar's death. The night before the assassination, she sees in her dreams a statue of him, and she says, quote, which like a fountain with an hundred spouts did run pure blood, 
and many lusty Romans came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. Yeah, well, and, and the senators see things like, you know, a slave with a hand that's burning and yet does not consume his flesh. And, you know, dead people walking, all, all kinds of portents and owls hooting at, mid, at midday and blah, blah, blah. Similar things happen in, in Macbeth. You know, those horses that eat each other. That's right. And the owl that kills the falcon. So there are, there are magical portents that happen in, in Shakespeare plays. And what about the soothsayer in Antony and Cleopatra? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Charmian, uh, who's like the, the right-hand gal to Cleopatra, asks Alexis, you know, where's the soothsayer that you, that you told the queen about who's so great, you know? And looking at her hand, the soothsayer proceeds to tell the future, you know? Um, Charmin asks him to read the future for Eros, another uh, lady in waiting to Cleopatra. And he says, your fortunes are alike, you know? Mm -hmm. He tells Charmian that she's gonna outlive Cleopatra and that she has seen a fairer fortune than that which is to follow. You yep. know, Soothsayer appears again in the second act and uh, again, truthfully kind of outlines the future. Antony says, whose fortune shall rise higher, Caesar's or mine? And the Soothsayer says Caesar's. The and the Soothsayers in both Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra seem like the real deal because certainly what they predict comes true. Right. Same thing in Cymbeline, right? The soothsayer is called upon to interpret the, the dream that Posthumus has and makes it clear to everybody. You know, the end of the drama justifies what he says. Well, you've got freaking Zeus coming down in that play. Well, there's that. Granted, it's Jupiter. And then you have, you know, in The Winter's Tale, the Oracle, the Oracle of Delphi is consulted. That's right. And in Pericles, the king discovers the queen because he dreams about it. Right. Dreams about the place where she was and what he should do and say when he gets there. And then, of course, there's probably the other than Macbeth, the the, the play and 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 to some extent Midsummer, the play that's most filled with magic is comes towards the very end of Shakespeare's career and the Tempest. That's right. Which, for those of you who don't know, the the, uh, the the protagonist of the Tempest is Prospero, the uh, the the Duke of Milan who has been banished and uh, is now on a magical island in the middle of a sea that's kind of hard to determine exactly where it is. Mm -hmm. And he is a powerful magician who holds sway over uh, two not entirely human creatures, Ariel, the spirit of air, and Caliban, possibly the spirit of earth, although I have a theory about that too. I'll bet you do. But he is, but he's a white magician. He's not a black magician. Well, he appears to be a white magician, but you know, for a white magician, he sure is a total asshole. Well, but you could you could argue that point by saying don't the people deserve it? Well, which uh, by which I will say which people? Well, I mean, you know, does Caliban I mean his his subjects back in we never get to see his subjects back in Milan or, or Milan as it's pronounced in the play um, you know he's he's overthrown by his evil brother Antonio who later shows up on the island um, and, and that and, bitch deserves what he gets well he does he does I mean I could go down the rabbit hole and maybe I will a little bit Prospero says basically he gave the government of the of the dukedom of Milan over to his younger brother Antonio because he was more interested in studying his occult books 
And eventually Antonio got ambitious and overthrew Prospero and instead of killing him, kicked him and his infant daughter out in a boat and sent them into the middle of the sea to die. Right, um, in a boat, by the way, that I love what they say. So like the boat is so bad that, quote, instinctively the rats have quit it. Right, so it's the rotten carcass of a butt is That's how right. it's described. Um, and miraculously, they survived due to an old lord who gave them some food and also his books. Um, but let me put it this way. Don't you think Prospero owed his people an explanation for why he was abdicating power? If he was such a great ruler, why did he abandon them to go into his library all those years? Maybe, but maybe, you know, first of all, we all know that decisions that are made between politicians are never discussed with the people. Well, no, but it's like, I don't think Prospero discussed it with his brother. He just basically said to Antonio, you do the hard work of governing and I'm gonna be over here reading some books. Necessarily, no, we don't know what that conversation was. And anyway, Antonio is such an asshole that if he saw any way to take power and take control, he'd be like, yeah, 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 bye, 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 go, go, go. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, listen, I'm not, I'm not excusing Antonio. And certainly we see Antonio later on trying to suborn, successfully trying to suborn his friend Sebastian into another murder, this time That's of right. the king. So yeah, Antonio's a schmuck. There's no, there's no denying that. I'm just saying the Prospero seems to be a white magician, but he's a total prick to everyone he meets, including his daughter. He's really mean to Miranda. He treats Caliban like shit. Caliban, who, P.S., was the daughter of the witch, the daughter, the son, son, pardon me, the son of the witch Sycorax, who owned the island before Prospero showed up. And, and a human. And, and died, there. sorry? Uh, he's the, the product of Sycorax, the witch, and a human. Uh, is he though? Uh, we know that Sycorax was pregnant when she got kicked out of Algiers and was and showed up on the island and gave birth to Caliban, but we never find out who Caliban's father is. And this is my theory. My theory is that Caliban's father is in fact a demon or the devil. And here is why I think. Oh, that. it is the devil. Well, it, it we don't know. I mean, it it never we don't ever get that information directly. But this is why I think that and why it's important. Um, throughout the play, when Prospero mostly tortures Caliban, he calls him the son of the devil or that sort of thing constantly. And it seems like mere invective. But what if it's true? What if it's true? One of the things, speaking of one of the reasons I don't think that, that Prospero is such a white magician, later in the play when he's divesting himself of his powers, he boasts and brags about all of the amazing things that he's been able to do, like call down thunderbolts and all of this shit. And one of the things that he says that he's been able to do is to raise dead people from the grave and talk to them. Well, let's think about that for a minute. First of all, why would you want to do that? Right. Second of all, information, baby. Yeah. <laughs> the more if, you know. If he that is a that, but that's not white magic. That's black magic. And if he where but it's white, big yes, but it's black magic with so so the idea of magic, right? The thing that you know, having done this Wiccan thing in the past, the thing that separates white magic and black magic is that you know you can you can assume an apparent harshment harshness, but. It is always, in fact, a personification of gentleness because you return good for evil, you use your powers for righteous ends and always with mercy. Right. 
so how does dead raising dead people figure into that? Again, information. Right. Well, and, and I think that's what happened here. So if you think of, think about where, first of all, it would have had to happen, this raising of the dead people, it's unlikely that it could have happened in Milan, because if you had the power to raise dead people and your brother tried to overthrow you, wouldn't you raise like a zombie army to protect you? Well, if you had the power to raise the dead at that point, you'd right. kick his ass out. Right. So my point, my point is it probably, he probably didn't gain the ability to raise any dead people until he was on the island. Right. I agree. Okay. So if we. His powers got much more extreme once he was on the island. And there may be a property of the island that also aids his magic. Right. But let us, let us posit then that he had to raise, he had, first of all, let's accept that he did it because he says so. And he, there's no motivation to lie. That's right. Then, then let's accept that it had to happen on the island. Right. So who's on the island? Well, there's him who's not dead. There's Miranda who's not dead. There's Ariel who's not a human being, who's a right. spirit. And there's Caliban who's also not dead. So who's the only dead person on the island? Sycorax, Sycorax. the witch. Yeah. That's the only dead person. So if he raised any dead people, it had to be Sycorax, right? So if he raised Sycorax from the dead and had a conversation with her, the most logical question to ask her is, who the hell is Caliban's father, right? That's right. So if so, if she told him that Caliban's father is in fact the devil or a demon, how powerful does that make Caliban? Because Caliban then is the child of a witch who we know is powerful enough that she could control the moon because Prospero says so. That's right. And if her, his father was a demon, then that makes Caliban, who is ignorant of his power, unbelievable, much more powerful than Prospero could ever be. Which is why he has to keep him so contained. Exactly. And this is my theory. Because the way Prospero treats Caliban throughout that play makes no sense unless... He has to keep Caliban in ignorance of who he is. And my final proof of this is that Caliban has that rebellion, quote unquote, with the idiots, Stefano and Trinculo, who get him drunk and they're going to revolt. And it's treated as comedy, supposedly. And Prospero makes this giant magical mask for his daughter and her and her fiance. Right. And in the middle of it, he breaks it off and remembers the rebellion and takes it super seriously. And Miranda is like, I've never seen him so angry in my whole life. Well, if that rebellion is in fact nothing and a comedy, then why would he break it off and become angry? But if Caliban is rebelling and Caliban is that powerful, then that rebellion is incredibly important and it means it has to be taken seriously. I think it changes the play entirely. But, But he has to be kept that way. And so Prospero eventually leaves Ariel and Caliban alone on the island because, you know, if Caliban ever, if Caliban well, Ariel realized, is set free. Yes, Ariel is set free, but he, he's, you know, the island is his home. Yes. Caliban is left there too. And if Cal, you know, now Cal, who knows what the future holds for Caliban? If he ever discovers his own powers, look the fuck out. You can't yeah, bring you can't bring him back to Europe. That's for yeah, sure. There's no way for him to discover it once everybody's gone, though. I think unless he finds Prospero's book. Prospero has left the book on the island. He drowned it in a pool. But what if Caliban finds it? Right. If it wasn't completely destroyed, you mean? Well, it's a magic book. That's right. And I know Caliban is illiterate, but you know he's got time. <laughs> 
Anyway, again, my point is I think it makes the proceedings much more dramatic if there's a genuine threat to Prospero. It makes sense. And it's also very occult. It is very occult. Well, we've gone on and on today, haven't we? We have gone on and on today, but you know, we need things to help us think about other things besides. Yeah, don't even say it. Don't even say it. Hopefully by the time you're listening to this, it will all be over. No, because it's dropping on the 30th. Well, but but they may be listening to it in a few weeks or a few yeah, months. That's right. People could that's be listening right. to this in two years. Who knows? <laughs> By which time, if things go poorly, I will be a moldering corpse. Um, interestingly enough, and this kind of leads us to the closing, uh, we love that you listen. Please leave us a review. We love five stars, but also write something about it. It and really also, helps us, you guys. It does really help us. And... Interesting that the last thing we're talking about is the Tempest because I'm going to ask everybody, if you have a little bit of extra money, go to patreon.com to our page and become a patron of ours. And you can get extra cool stuff like maybe our Shakespeare Sundays, which we've been doing every other week for the past six months. This weekend, we're reading the Tempest and maybe you'll get to hear that if you become a patron. There's all kinds of goodies on the Patreon page. That's right. Also, if you go to our website at www.thebardcastudick.com, you'll find a link to the Actress Fund, which is the charity that this podcast supports. Uh, it's very hard times for, for actors and, and all members of the performing arts these days. So please give generously if you can. That's right. Even Disney Ugh. fired like 85% of their equity actors. Well, and, an, and another theater outside New York just closed. I, did you see that Broadway Westchester Westchester closed? Broadway Theater, Horrible. yeah, which has been in, it has been putting on beautiful Broadway quality plays for 47 years and they are closing. It's a tragedy. Um, please, please uh, do support that if you can. And, and do join us for, for our next episode. What will we be discussing, Lisa Ann? Our next episode will be a continuation of our film Shakespeare. And this time we will be talking about the comedies of Shakespeare that have been on film. That's right. Midsummer Night's Dream, Twelfth Night, Much Ado About Nothing, all of that kind of thing. So definitely join us next time. And in the meantime, remember, it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare, you dick. Better and better at that every time. Oi, Gavalta. Preceding podcast was a production of Country Matters, LLC, copyright 2020, all rights reserved.